The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Micah, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. Like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Shane. Well, um, I was, and I don't know if any of you were, but I was in a fraternity in college, and um, at the end of the year, uh, we often had like kind of a meeting where everybody kind of got to share, uh, particularly the upper class, and I got to share kind of, you know, what their kind of thoughts with everybody and some of the last meetings, and you can imagine some of them were pretty interesting and funny, all the wisdom, great wisdom that came from, from those meetings. But um, from this one in particular, it was kind of a, a year-end kind of thing, <clears throat> and I remember uh, one person in particular who was just highly charged. They were just emotional. They were, and you know, in those kind of meetings, you can imagine, it gets emotional. It's the last meeting of the year. A lot of people are, are graduating, moving on, and um, you're kind of looking down the corridor of what's next. And I remember this particular uh, fraternity brother of ours standing up and, and just kind of, you know, in a room full of emotion and passion saying, saying, guys, y'all, y'all, this is the best it gets. This is it right here. This is all there is. And, you know, people in the room are like, yeah, yeah, man. And I'm, I'm just sitting there thinking, man, please, I hope not. I mean, um, and it was passionate. It was true. I mean, you know, there's that moment of like, this is the best it gets. It's all there is. You know, we heard, a, we heard this passage. And over the last weeks, we've been studying the book of Micah. And it's a, a minor prophet that was written in the 8th century B.C., and it's a minor prophet, not because of the importance of the book, but because of its length. There are major and minor prophets in the Bible and the Old Testament. And this book in particular, uh, when you hear passages like this, uh, Martin Luther, the great theologian, um, if you've heard that name, he used to say things like, I do not get the prophets. They are weird. He literally said, this is very Martin Luther. They are weird. They write in all sorts of directions. You can't figure out which way they're going. What is going on? <laughs> and, um, you know, you hear a passage like the one we read, and you think, what, what, what is being said there? Like, wh- what are we talking about? <laughs> and um, what Micah is doing is he's writing to a specific time and a specific period. And what I've really tried to encourage us to do is, is listeners to say, first, don't just jump to the application of, okay, what in the world does that have to do with me first? You first have to, we have to take it up and go, what did this really mean to the original hearers? What did they think of this? What was being addressed? 
And, and when you look at the prophetic books in the Old Testament, they were written to three kind of categories. They were written to categories of people that were about to experience exile and be taken and, and have major catastrophes happen. They were written to people that were during the exile where they were taken captive by Assyria and Babylon. You heard that name, Babylon. And then you had post-exilic, post-the-exile authors and, and prophets who spoke into what does it mean to live now. Micah sat situated in Isaiah, he and Isaiah, which you may have heard the name Isaiah. We read a lot of Isaiah at Christmas time. Micah and Isaiah wrote before all of those things happen. So when Micah was writing, and he was writing and the Lord used him to speak, he was speaking into the sin and judgment and restoration and forgiveness that they were going to receive, that they were going to inherit, going to have happen to them. And so they were situated in a time of, of like, what's next? And you could kind of see, in a sense, that the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah at the time had split into northern and southern kingdoms. They were kind of sitting back going, hey, this is really the best it gets. This is kind of all there is. This is it. I mean, what's, what's next? And Micah comes to deliver a message to them and say, hey, this isn't all there is. And you need to be shaken to know that there's something much greater ahead. Theologians over the centuries have actually drawn this from what the Bible does in the Old and New Testament called the already and the not yet. That already there are the promises of God. Already he has come, he has shown us who he is, and we know that we are to be in relationship with him, but we're not yet to this point where, where everything is fulfilled, where everything is brought to harmony. We feel a tension, just like we feel now, a tension of, okay, we know God is true, we know he's spoken, but how do we live in this in-between time of already and not yet? Is this the best it gets? Is this all there is? Are we just supposed to kind of hang on till some sort of ending? What is that? This is where Micah speaks into that. And this particular passage in chapter four, we read from a selection that kind of gives you, we'll double click on it, and you'll you'll see the whole chapter in within these verses. But you're gonna see how the Bible speaks right here through Micah. God speaks through Micah about three things. How he will gather us, how he will restore us, and how he keeps us in the midst of this already not yet. So how he will gather, restore, and keep. You know, this uh, passage begins in verse six. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. If there's a theme that happens through here, and you saw the word kind of twice, but in two ways, assemble and gather, that the Bible picks up. You read this in Micah, but if you expand it out, you see it in all the prophets and you actually see it in the Old and New Testament of scattering and gathering. This kind of theme that kind of rolls through there. That, that it's through that there's a scattering and gathering again. It actually picks up in the, in the very beginning of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's every, it seems like there's chaos. And the Lord creates and makes, and it, it comes together. 
in this beautiful framework. But then in chapter three of the very beginning of the Bible, then this thing called sin enters the picture and there's chaos again. And not only that, the people of God that are gathered, Adam, Eve, creation is gathered together. It's, it's working in this way of, of beauty and harmony together is scattered from sin. Adam and Eve are driven from the garden. They believe they can live on their own. They, they think uh, we, we, can, we can do this. We believe that God exists, but we believe we can do it ourselves. And sin essentially does that. It begins to scatter them and their relationships. And you begin to see this line of this scattering from that point on. Even when you hit Genesis chapter 15, just a few chapters later, Abraham is brought on the scene, this, this massive figure of the Old Testament. And one of the things God talks about is to say, he makes him look at the stars and says, hey, guess what? I'm going to number your descendants, your people that I will gather will be as much as these stars. <laughs> and Abraham's like, whoa, that's insane. How are you gonna do that? Further on, Exodus, maybe if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you've heard of even that, God bringing the people of, of Israel out of Egypt, and what does he do? He gathers them. You see, it just continues, it goes and goes and goes, that God is working against what has been scattered. God is constantly bringing together what has been dispersed. And, and, and going against what sin it pervades in. You know what's interesting, and, and even in the, the second law of thermodynamics, you're like, uh, it's early, can we, yeah. Second law of thermodynamics. Do you know what's interesting about it? Even the way that creation is, the second law of thermodynamics talks about entropy, which means things are breaking down. Even our bodies, even now. What, no, it doesn't matter what age we would be in this room, when we are born, our bodies begin that process. We are growing, but we're also breaking down. Sin is in this creation. Things break down. And how do we see that gathering happen? One of the easiest softballs of scattering and, and, and what we've seen is, is the pandemic. And though we're kind of like on this side of it, right? Man, when have we ever in our generation felt the moments where we had to just only see each other on a screen? You're confined to a, 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 an apartment, a house, unable to go out. Even when you did go out, you saw, you went to the shelves and there are things bare. You experience things. I know several of you that are in college and university, my nephew included, was one of those first freshmen into that kind of pandemic life of the university. No contact. Even learning from a distance. And what was the thing that we consistently realized after we've kind of come out of it is what does it mean for us to be together again? To have a hug to, to feel tangibility of each other's lives, to see shelves with not just bare, but actually go up and grab things at a store, to, to experience work in a workplace where you can laugh with people and not wonder, if, are they, do they just have a shirt on and aren't wearing pants because they can because of a camera? To enjoy one another. Imagine the scattering. That's a taste 
of what this is talking about. To actually be scattered so much that you can't even worship. You can't come together and assemble. You can't enjoy the temple. You can't enjoy the life that you have, the work where they had to go out. They didn't have cameras. And not only that, to see a superpower like Assyria and another one called Babylon who would take them and put them in exile away from everything they know, dear, how much more would gathering mean to be brought together, to assemble, to be connected again? Gathering would mean everything. And yet they're sitting on this cusp going, Is this the best it gets? Is this all there is? We kind of know that. Oh, we're past the pandemic. But how much do we feel the awkwardness just in our own lives of are we really assembled? Are we really together? Or is there so much division that still exists? You know, it's interesting when it says in verse six and seven, when it goes, it says, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make a remnant. The word lame isn't people who just have lame physically. It actually is a translation Hebrew of those who have a limp. And it's connecting back to early on in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 32, about a a person named Jacob, where Jacob spent his entire life as a part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was his grandfather. To him was going to be all the inheritance. To him, he was in the line of those stars. He was to be his father. But you know what he did? If you look at his story, it's full of his manipulation. He manipulated to to get a wife. He manipulated his vocation to get a job. He manipulated uh, his brother and his family to get an inheritance that he wanted. It was all a part of that because Jacob for so long thought, if I can manipulate my circumstances and even more so God and get him out of the way, I can have things the way I want them. I can gather to myself what I think really matters to me. And there's a moment in in his life in Genesis 32 when God wrestles with Jacob. It actually says Jacob wrestles with God. And And at first it sounds like this hard, arduous thing, but it actually comes out on the other side with a celebratory thing because God touches his hip and he dislocates it and creates this this moment for Jacob where he's he's hurting. And it was such a celebratory moment, and the reason why is because that was the turning point of God's grace in his life to humble Jacob, to see that he can no longer manipulate his circumstances. And it actually says that Jacob received all the blessing, and you see this humility of him coming out, that it's no longer a a religion of his family, but it becomes something he takes on and say, God, I have wrestled with. And I have prevailed, not that he beat God, but that he prevailed, that he survived and has been made humble and has been brought together. And what you begin to see in his life is this scattering and his manipulation of his own life beginning to be gathered again. You know what's interesting? In John chapter four, a woman comes to Jesus at a well who's a Samaritan, who's a part actually of the northern kingdom, 
the northern and southern kingdoms. Israel and Samaria was the capital. She comes to him, and he's a Jew, a part of the southern kingdom. And everybody, it's so, it's very scandalous because she comes to him and they begin to have this conversation about water and then soon it moves into her relationships and she's not only had four husbands, the one she is with now is not her husband, it says. And somehow her relational life becomes out. And then it starts to come out. She says, yeah, okay, well, and she, you can kind of see in the passage where she wants to move away from that. She says, on this mountain or on this mountain, we've been told we worship. Where do we worship? What, what mountain? And Jesus says something so fascinating. He says, it will not be on your mountain in the northern kingdom or on mine in the southern kingdom. But God seeks worshipers. Literally says, God seeks worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And at that moment, she realizes and says, wait, we know we're waiting for someone to come back and gather and bring us in. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And do you know what gathering means to her so much? With all the trash that she brought and Jesus talks to her and uncovers, she can do nothing but run to the town and say, come and meet a man that told all that I ever did. And don't you know, the town is small enough and knows exactly her whole history. What transforms a heart so deeply? So that you brush up against your shame, maybe even the deepest of shame, and are so freed by it that you can actually live out of it with honesty and humility is when you know you've been gathered. If you wanna know what gathering really means, do you know what the name church is in Greek? It's called ekklesia. It's the called out ones. The church is actually the picture of the gathered people. It's a picture of what's to come. It's a picture of those whom Jesus, as their head and king, have been brought to as daughters and sons to show that we are not scattered. How in the world could you call one another sisters and brothers? This is the, it totally confused the Roman Empire. Why are these people calling themselves sisters and brothers? So weird, it, legitimately, in the first century because they have nothing to do with one another from all walks of life. They're from circles over here and here that don't match, they don't, they don't have just the same interests or the same likes, and yet they're what? Assembled, gathered, because they've been touched so much so by what it really means to be gathered that they don't manipulate how they're gathered. They're gathered because they're called out. Praise be to God. That's what the church is. This is a picture of what the gathering is, what God does in his son Jesus. It says in verse six, it says, in that day, declares the Lord. In that day, what is God gonna do? He gathers and he not only has the arms wide enough to reach you and me, no matter where we are, but he does so in order to restore us. He doesn't just bring us in and say, good luck with that. 
He does so to restore us. Some of you have been so kind to me and my family and um, have asked uh, how our house is coming. And oftentimes you'll, you'll prelude that, and we were in a huge flood and our house is being rebuilt. And many of you will say before you ask, you'll say, I hate to ask. I'm, oh, I'm scared to ask, but how's your house coming? <laughs> Which is actually a really kind way to say, because you know that our home was actually supposed to be finished in June of last year. And it, the target keeps moving. And many of you have been a part of construction stuff, or maybe you're in construction yourself, you know, supply chains and crews and all that stuff. But the thing that's so interesting about it is that we know it's being built, but I still don't really know when it's gonna be finished. And that is really hard. It's annoying, it's frustrating, and I don't know when I'm gonna not feel the restlessness of not being in my own home which has been for two plus years. It's two years this month. Now, I'm sitting here thinking, it says, in that day declares the Lord. Here's what's interesting. He says, in that day, the day will happen when this occurs. Declares the Lord, meaning it is so, it is being built, it is being constructed, it will happen. But the timing is unknown. And the people of God are hearing Micah say these things and they don't know actually when they're gonna actually be gathered and then even more so restored. They don't know when that's gonna happen. And then he throws in verse eight, which is this weird verse. This is where Martin Luther would be like, they talk so weird. Listen to this. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall come, shall it come the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Ju- daughters of Jerusalem. And, and, and it's this connective verse that talks about, even verse one through five, that are saying there's gonna be a new city. There's gonna be a restoration that you don't even understand. And, and that verse is strange. Even when you do the Hebrew, O tower of the flock, it says flock tower. It basically is like, think of a, a tower made of sheep, that, it, it, that is weird. Like, the prophets say weird things. What in the world does that mean? A flock tower. But what Micah was getting at, and it would ring in their ears, was that flock would strike in their hearts of, okay, a shepherd and a tower, a stronghold of security, it would remind them of an illustration, a, a theological picture, a picture of theology of David of the one who would come, a king who comes to shepherd them and yet is so strong and powerful. One that gives that picture that there will be restoration. There are a lot of pictures of this even in the New Testament. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is Revelation. Not Revelations, Revelation. It's a book at the very end. We've talked about Genesis. We're gonna hit all the way to the other end, Revelation that does this very same thing to talk about what does it mean to be restored? Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible. Listen to how it begins. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's an unbelievable passage. That, and I'll tell you, we went to something uh, um, a couple nights ago, Megan and I did, and she's like, beautiful, had this dress, amazing. And I didn't look at her as we were leaving and say, honey, you look like the best city ever. You're a city, you know? I mean, Jerusalem, the bride, is a city. What a weird description. No one's saying that. But why does this picture say this? Because the city, the new bride, the bride, the relationship that we have with God is going to look and be a city. It's going to be the gathered together ones. In verses 15 and so far, it talks about these dimensions and it gives you this perfect dimensions. And if you do the math in Revelation, it's a perfect cube. And the point isn't that the city's gonna be a cube and God will be married to it, but that God is going to be with his people. And it will be bustling. And it will be perfect in its wholeness. One theologian said this, and I love how he said it. He said, the size of the city is not necessarily in view, but the perfection and wholeness. Listen to this. Everything is proportionate, and nothing is awkward. Everything's proportionate, and nothing is awkward. If there's one thing we avoid in our culture, it is awkwardness. And we feel it on every level. Relationships, work, self. Can you imagine what, what this new city is about? There's nothing awkward about it. There's nothing that we live in and what we're looking for, what restoration is, what heaven is, is, is not just like the best weekend you've ever had forever. It's actually more than that. It's actually more than that. It's not moving away from it. It's the, it's the healing and intensification of it. Can you imagine not feeling off in a day? Can you imagine things that you do and bustle and live in and there's not an oddness to them? There's not a shortcoming there's not a, a disproportionate way of interacting with one another that things work and function as they should. And then it even goes on to say, in this place, in the new Jerusalem, verse 22 says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, in the Lamb. That in the city, there's not even a temple. In fact, there's not even gates because the city, the way that our relationship is going to be to God is all the time and at every place. Can you imagine, we just talked about NIFW, National Institute of Faith and Work, where you're learning to integrate work in your faith and we're constantly saying, what in the world is that, what does life look like to do that with? Like how do I constantly, and we, we go from day to day, week to week, I've mentioned this before, haven't you gone those days and even weeks and you look up and go, I haven't even thought about God today or this week. Not more or less just prayed for him or even gone to church, but you're like, I haven't even thought about him. 
Imagine what heaven, that won't exist. Our relationship with him and each other will be so perfect and together and gathered that we won't go a day without having to think about him. There will be no need for churches because we will be gathered and we'll be living life together. And the no gates mean there's no worry. Can you imagine not having insecurity? Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Living a life together where everything is driving to who we are and being restored in relationship with God and one another. That we don't have to look at our jobs to give back to us. They just exactly what they are. We don't have to look at other people and say, gosh, do I even matter? Do I even care? Because our soul will be so satisfied with what the true gathering will be that heaven isn't a small window at the best moment of your life. It is the healing and intensification of it. It's the newness that we all long for. And if you're following along here, you ask, okay, that sounds great, but how do we do this now? <laughs> that's, that's the not yet, but how do we live that's, that's the already of what we're looking for. How do we live in the not yet? How do we live here in this? This is where verses nine and 10 go to. They say, why, not, why do you not cry? Why do you, sorry. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? What it means in this, and what's interesting is that God gives this picture and then says, but I will keep you. That the childbirth is a picture of, of the suffering, the mourning, the, the difficulty, but yet not here, not yet present with the joys of what comes from it. And it is God next to him. And he says, why king and counselor? Such a weird way of throwing that in there. But to them, a king and a counselor meant if you wanted somebody to walk with you through the battles and war of this life, you needed a good king and a counselor. Because the king often showed and said, you are secure. I will keep those who, who, I will defend us from those who, enemies who try and get us, and especially for those who are powerless. And a counselor wasn't somebody who just, as we are used to, emotionally speak, spoke to you. It's someone who actually spoke into the kingdom and discerned what all of life was going on. They were so enlightened to things to help give wisdom and discernment how to live life best. And that's what we're always searching for. How do we look for living in this life? How do we live into this world and, and do what we need to do? What, what do we listen to? What, what, what do we listen to or take in that's formationally making us who we are? That helps us navigate in this difficulty in the battles. Look, this table is a picture exactly of what we just read in Micah. It's a symbol of the already not yet, and it proclaims something for us. It's an illustration of the fact that we get a taste of something, and yet it's not yet fulfilled, and it yet gives us, equips us to live in this life, knowing that it is fixed. We are headed for true restoration, but yet we have to be equipped for now. 
that God sends his counselor to us. He sends his son to us to live in the suffering, to take it on. Look, when you come to this table, it, it, it proclaims it because we say this every week. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And what we know that this isn't a full meal. This is a taste of, of the already, that it is yours. And that it is not just a God who says, good luck. But he's given his own body and blood to meet every tangible place that you are at battle. We're in an invisible battle as much as we are in a physical one. The battles we go through every day, don't we need to be equipped to live in it knowing that we will get there? It's not a, here's what you're hoping for and God sets you on a path. He keeps you and holds you and takes you all the way because you know what this table's for? It's for the gathered. We come forward, we rub shoulders with people that we may not even know. And yet we proclaim and take of the same table gathered because Jesus was scattered. His blood and his body were torn apart so that we might be gathered and kept. And you know what makes this food effective? What transforms us is the Holy Spirit himself. And the Greek word for the Holy Spirit is actually paraclete, the word for counselor. That we don't leave this table hoping we can remember it and grip it as tight as we can, but that he has gripped us from beginning until he carries us on, until the day he returns. That we have the mighty counselor, God himself, counseling our souls until we, he returns and we experience gathering and restoration in a way we can't even explain fully. Theology and pictures is what revelation gives us. And we rejoice in that. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together.